Hello and welcome to The Life of Christ by John Martin. This is a series of 197 studies presented over 15 years commencing in 1986, first given at the Glenlock Bible Camp and continuing through at the Enfield Ecclesia until September 2001. This is the first of those classes and it deals with John 17 verses 6 through to 26. And this episode is called This is Life Eternal That Ye May Know Me. Brother John. This wonderful prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. We all have to bear in mind, of course, that this is his very last words before he went into the Garden of Gethsemane, which I suppose would underline the pathos and the importance of this particular prayer. Now you will remember that it, fell, it falls into three sections, three natural sections of this prayer, where the Lord, of course, in the first five verses, he prays fervently for the successful completion of his own work, without which, brethren and sisters, nobody would be saved. If the Lord had not been saved, uh, nobody would be saved in him. He's just, that's as true as it is, he's our representative. So that's the most essential thing as far as he's concerned. Wasn't a selfish thing at all. He knew that that was so essential for the salvation of others. And then from verses 6 to 19, and we got halfway through that, we got a petition for God's help for the ministry of the apostles, who will need his help, of course, in the Lord's absence. And then finally, brethren and sisters, a prayer for all those who would respond to the message of the apostles. And of course that is very personal to ourselves because we're included in that prayer. Now just let's try and summarise up to where we got to last time in this second section when the Lord was praying for his apostles. He, he first of all says in verse 6 that he had manifested God's name. That's how he started that section because you see, if people are going to be saved, as Brother Thomas says, there's only one purpose for which people are going to be saved, and that is that they must express in their lives God-like characteristics. That's all that's going to be preserved in the kingdom of God among those who are immortal. Nothing else. And so if we don't know God, if we, if we can't have a, a comprehension of who and what God is, there's no way that we can obviously manifest him. So the first thing was, I have manifested thy name, unto the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. So it was a deliberate, a deliberate manifestation that men might see the Father. That was the purpose of it all. Now, you'll notice also that in that expression, the next point we learnt was that the Lord was very, very aware, acutely aware of his responsibilities. We remember the amount of times he kept repeating that these men are those which God had given him out of the world. Thine they are, and so on. He kept saying that, uh, which only uh, goes to emphasise, brethren and sisters, that he realised the responsibility that he had. And he wasn't going, of course, to shirk that responsibility. They were his father's children, and he was to look after them. And, of course, the moral lesson for, our, for us is obvious. We have got nowhere near, of course, the responsibility that our Lord had. We wouldn't even pretend to have that. But every person that comes in that door, every interested friend that comes in this hall and starts a course whereby they learn the truth, 
It's our responsibility, brethren and sisters, to try and manifest the Father to them in, in our example. Show them what the Father is like. That is our responsibility. Because we believe that God draws people to the truth. Do we really believe that? Then if that person is a genuine person, genuinely seeking truth, God has brought that person here and was influencing that person before we did. So we have a responsibility for God towards that person. We must never forget that. Jesus was very much aware of that. Now from verses 7 to 8 he, he went on to say that those men had in some measure came to appreciate the divine origin from whence he had come. They came to see that what he was saying was from God. They came to see that what he was doing was the ways of God. And as he pointed out, brothers and sisters, that the way to know whether a thing is of God or not is to do it. And they saw him do that. They saw him. And they began to see that he was more than just a prophet. He was more than just a great teacher. That his moral teachings, his, his moral behaviour, brothers and sisters, was the outcome of a divine origin. It came from God. He, he said they began to see that. And then from verses 9 to 10, in, the, in his prayer to the Father, he, he expresses to the Father that he shares the love the Father has for them. It wasn't just simply being responsible for them because that was his duty. He said that they would not only would they glorify the Father, they would glorify him because they both had the same attitude towards them. And he made that known to his Father. And then of course we left our last class down around about verse 11 and 12 where we were starting to consider that very, very fervent prayer for the Father's especial care upon the sheep that he was to leave behind. He'd made the point that while he had them, while he was in the world, he had guarded them, he had kept them, he kept them from running away and escaping, as it were, as the word in the Greek indicates, getting away from the flock. He had herded them together, but now he was going and he felt that a greater need was there with them uh, during his absence, especially those three days and three nights, brothers and sisters, when he would not be alive, that he needed the Father more than ever before to put his hand over the little ones. And that was a very, very fervent prayer indeed. Now, as Brother Chris, in his prayer, made mention of the fact that Jesus had already said, long before he gave this prayer, back in John chapter 6 actually, he said, of all that the Father hath given me, I should lose nothing. He wasn't allowed to lose anybody. Now, we pick it up, therefore, in verse 12. And from verse 12, we begin our consideration proper for this evening, when he says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. But, the son of perdition. So one was lost. Now, actually, brothers and sisters, the word for lost and the word for perdition is from the same root word in the Greek. The son of destruction. The son of destruction, he says, goes to destruction. But they're very much related words. So there was one lost. But you know, there was only the one lost. In chapter 18 and verse 9 we have here, in the very next chapter of the Gospel of John, we read this, that when the disciples forsook him and fled, in verse 9 John says that the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Now they all fled out of the garden, except Judas. He was with the band that come to take the Lord, but all the rest fled from the garden. And John reflecting upon that, 
saw that the Lord went forth, said, who are you looking for? Jesus, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Don't worry about these, I'm the one you want. And so in that moment, of course, that he'd given himself up like that, willingly, in that moment, the rest fled. And John saw that as indicative that this was a almost a partial fulfilment of those words, that none should be lost, because the only one left in that garden was Judas. Now that shows, brothers and sisters, that when the Lord was talking about those whom thou hast given me, specifically he's speaking of those twelve apostles. And we know, of course, it applies to all his believers, but in a very special sense, he's talking about those twelve. Those were the ones that the Father had separated for him. Those were the ones that he had to watch. And none of them were lost, despite doubting Thomas, despite the slowness of Philip, despite the sons of thunder, despite the impetuosity of Peter. None of them was lost except Judas. And in that scene in the garden, they're all gone except him. And John makes that point in the next chapter. And so one would think, well, do we have a failure here? No, says Jesus, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So the father knew all about that, brothers and sisters. It wasn't as if he was going to call the Lord into account for that. The father knew all about that, that the scripture might be fulfilled. What scripture? Psalm 41 and verse 9, we won't turn it up, says, He that eateth bread with me, have lifted up his heel against me. Now Jesus knew that and he knew the one that whom it applied. So you see, it wasn't as if there was a slip-up. It wasn't as if he didn't know. Something went wrong. He lost control. He didn't. He knew that from the beginning. And around the table, around that table, he quoted that verse and said, One of you will betray me. For it is written, He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. So he already knew that. Have not I chosen you, he said, and one of you is a devil, John 6, verse 70. And he gave several other indications, brothers and sisters, that he knew that traitor. So there was no slip up here. And the fact that he revealed that that man's name to Peter and John at that table was not just to satisfy their curiosity, but as he said himself, that when it comes to pass, you may believe. Now most, you know, people would be sort of depressed if, if a, a notable member of our community was to defect it, it, would, it would have a, a very depressive effect upon them and could even shatter their faith but Jesus told those two disciples that when it happens disappointing as it might be it shouldn't shatter their faith it should be a confirmation that he knew about it now if Jesus hadn't have said that if he hadn't have told those two disciples then that point could not have been made but he did tell them and he told them for that reason, brothers and sisters, because there's no slip up here. This is a fulfilment of the scripture. It was meant to be. Not that God made Judas go bad. The foreknowledge of God, something we will never comprehend, could see that situation, brothers and sisters, and provided for that, and Jesus knew who that man was. So really, in the absolute sense, none were lost. Now this one's called the son of perdition. As I say, it's a related word to the word lost. It really means the son of destruction. Now, you know, you come across that phrase several times in the Bible. What does it mean, son of this or son of that? You see, you, you get, for example, a sons of Belial, 1 Samuel chapter 2. You get Jesus talking about the son of peace. You enter in a house and a person's hospitable. Well, the son of peace is there. And you get several expressions like that. 
And really all that he's saying, brothers and sisters, by using the word son, is that here is a person's choice. It's their own personal choice to be related to that attribute, whatever it might be. Just the same as you or I are sons and daughters of a certain family. We are related to that family. Well, related, we call that by birth. But here by choice of character, we become sons of destruction, sons of, of peace, sons of Belial. Whatever is our natural choice to be, that expression covers that. Judas had chosen to be a son of destruction. He had made that choice. Despite the prophecy on him, it was his personal choice to do that. That's why he called the son of destruction. There's some very interesting usages of that word, brothers and sisters, that word destruction. You know, of course, you've got this title applied to the Catholic system, haven't you? But before we go there, come back to Isaiah 57. Because I think this has a relationship to how this becomes applied to the Catholic system. The word perdition. And the title, son of perdition. In Isaiah 57 and verse 4, or we can read from verse 1 to get the whole context of this, because it really is interesting, it says, in Isaiah 57 and verse 1, The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart, and merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But draw near hither, ye sons of the sorceress, the seed of the adulterer and the whore, Against whom do ye sport yourselves? Against whom make ye a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of sons of falsehood? You see that they are the sons of the sorceress, the seed of adulteress. They are the seed of falsehood, the sons of that which is a sham, is the Hebrew word. It's, it's an absolute, it's, it's feignedly, it's, it's, a, it's a farce. They're sons of a sham, brothers and sisters. They're sons of a show, that's what they are. The righteous is gone, the merciful man is taken away to lie in peace and wait for his reward and they don't consider it. And they go on in their own ways giving a, a, a front that's an absolute sham of religion. So they're sons of sham, that's what they are. Now that's why that in the second of Thessalonians chapter 2 we have the title of Judas applied to the Roman system, haven't we? Let's have a look at that, brothers and sisters, in Paul's writings in the second of Thessalonians chapter 2. Very familiar passage of scripture with us. Not left in much doubt as to who it's talking about. Person in verse 4 that exalts himself above all that is called God showing himself that he is God, sitting in the temple of God. He's an absolute sham. That's what he is. In verse 9, his workings are like the workings of Satan with all signs and lying wonders, all these false miracles, sons of a sham. Well, he's called in verse 3, son of perdition. He's the son of perdition. He's got Judas's title because, you see, there was the foundation, brothers and sisters, of the Roman Catholic apostasy. A defector from the ranks of the Lord allying himself with the powers of Rome. And you might say there was a seed being born in that garden of that apostasy. So the title that's given to him as an individual became the title of a system who apes 
the discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had lives a sham, saying that they are the disciples of Christ, but are mingled with the powers of this world, with men in high places, among the rich and the influential, and they're nothing but a sham. Sons of destruction they are, because that's their natural choice. You know, in Revelation 17, twice it says in that chapter concerning the great system upon where that beast which the woman rides, that they're going to go into perdition, same word, go into destruction. Well, that's what Judas was heading for, brethren and sisters. So Jesus prays to his father and he says, I haven't lost any, the son of destruction's gone, but, but he says, we knew about that, you had prophesied of it, I was aware of it, that we, there was no real loss there in that sense, although it was a loss, it was no, in the sense that he's talking about, none of them were lost, his work, brothers and sisters, had not failed. And so when we come back to that 12th chapter, he's going to pray for his disciples who are going to be left in this world. In verse 13 he said, And now I am coming to thee, it's in the present tense, since if he was on his way, and he says to the Father, I've spoken these things quite openly. I want them to hear what I'm saying. But he wanted them to hear this prayer, brothers and sisters, that they might be encouraged. And he says, having heard it, they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. If they listened carefully to what he was saying, there would be great joy in that, brothers and sisters. You know, it is a great joy. We, we ought to take great comfort. You know, we can go into the depths of Scripture sometimes to get all the detail, but we don't often think about the most simple things. And you know, it's very comforting to, to, to lie down in your bed at night, you might be disturbed in mind and spirit about certain things in your life and you're very upset about that and you pray to the Father. It's a wonderful and a comforting thought to know that the Lord Jesus Christ actually prayed for us. He really did. If we don't believe that, then we don't believe that we're in the truth. Because he said, I don't pray for these alone, but for all those who shall believe on me through their word. And there's not one of us here hasn't come into the truth, mainly through the writings of the apostles who, who expound the truth in, in their writings. So we are the ones he's talking about, and we ought to be very, very comforted with that. We've heard those words, we haven't heard them spoken in public, but we've read them here. They're public to us. And we should take great comfort that, that the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for us brother and sisters in trouble, where we lose loved ones and we, we appeal to our brothers and sisters to help us in their prayers. Well, you think about the Lord Jesus Christ. He prayed for us. Couldn't get a more powerful prayer than that. Now in verse 14 he says, Look, I have given them thy word and the world hath hated them. Now that goes, that's, that's almost one sentence. Because the reason that the world hated them was because he gave them his word. It wasn't two separate things. It wasn't the fact that he gave them the word and the world hated them. The world hated them because he gave them the word. That's what he's saying. And you know, it's almost an anomaly, brothers and sisters, that we, we speak about the comforts of the word, the necessity for Bible study, and get down to it as a means of sanctification, of ordering our lives, and yet it is really the cause of why we are such a despised people in certain quarters, and, and why we're such a small people. That's the reason for it, because we got the word of God. It's an anomaly in one way, isn't it? It's the cause of our comfort, the reason of our comfort and the cause of our persecution. What did Genesis 3.15 say? I, says God, God, I will put enmity. I'll do that. 
Cain and Abel talk between each other. There was the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. What was the result? Murder. Why? Because Cain had raised the matter of God's word. Jesus said, think not that I've come to send peace. I have come to send a sword. And yet that man went everywhere preaching, brothers and sisters, that family groups should stay together, that children should honour their parents, parents should love their children. But he knew that the reception of his teaching was going to split families. Not that he wanted that. That was not his motive, but it would happen. And so he says to his father, all the things that he'd done and had fulfilled his obligations, and yet he knew that the very the very things that were going to sanctify them in life were also the things that were going to bring about their persecution. So Peter and John and the other apostles in Acts chapter 5 rejoiced that they had been accounted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. Had never been for his name, they wouldn't have suffered. But they did. But Jesus said, look, I don't want to take them out of the world. I don't want for that reason to take them out of the world. I don't want you to take them out of the world. He said, the world hated them because they hate that they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Of course they're not. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father. That's probably the most important expression in that verse, in the first of John 2, verses 15 and 16. We emphasise the three last, rightly so, we relate them back to Genesis 3 and to the temptation of the Lord. But probably the most important thing in those verses is that those lusts are not of the Father. Therefore, if we find compatibility with the world, brothers and sisters, it's because we're living as the world. We're doing the things which are contrary to the Father. And so he says, you know, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world, because he's of the Father. Now he says he doesn't pray to take them out of the world, because that would destroy the very purpose of why we're here. We're here to develop character, brothers and sisters, aren't we? You take the first of Peter chapter 4. This couldn't happen if we weren't in the world. We've got to be here. Now in the first of Peter chapter 4, we read verses 12 and 13. Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice! inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, he may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now we can multiply those references quite considerably, brothers and sisters. If we suffer with him, we shall reign with him. Now if we're not in the place where we're going to suffer, there's no way we're going to suffer, there's no way we're going to reign with him. There's no way that we can be tried with a fiery trial if we're not in the middle of the fire. So Jesus doesn't want the Father to take them out of that situation. Because that situation that they're in is the very situation that's going to help refine their characters. He doesn't want to remove them from that. But he said that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Now this is one of the couple of places where John uses the, the personality of evil. Actually the Greek says from the evil one. And there's a couple of places where John says that. Now that is that course is a comes a couple of references that the people who believe in the personal devil love those references. From the evil one. Or oh, they say that there it is, you keep them from the devil. Well you see, this is the Lord's Prayer. If you take the first Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter six, 
when he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, he uses the expression there to keep them from evil. And it simply means evil. doesn't mean, it's not in the Greek, the evil one. But the expressions are in that prayer, and this expression is in this prayer. They're not two different evils. All that John is doing, brothers and sisters, is personifying evil because this is a personal problem. It's something very personal to it. As a matter of fact, the Greek word for evil here means that which is hurtful and that which is causing anguish. So he says, keep them in the world for the purpose of their character, but keep them from things that are going to be hurtful and cause great anguish that might, that might, tip them over and send them out of the truth. That's what he prayed for. Now, if you come to another place where he uses this, in the first of John chapter 3, he uses it of Cain. Here's another one of these places where he uses the definite article and the personality of the evil. He speaks about Cain. In verse 12 of the first of John chapter 3, he says, Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And why did he slay him? Because his own works were evil. Now you get a, get a person believing in the immortal devil who quotes you that verse, you want to say, hang on, John equates that wicked one with his own works. doesn't say the works of another, it's his work, and it was. They were his own works. And so the evil one, brothers and sisters, is ourselves. There's no doubt about that but it's personified because it's something that affects us personally. It can create great hurt and develop great anguish and it could almost take us out of the truth unless we are recovered from that situation. Jesus prayed that God would recover them from that situation. And how's it going to be done? Verse 17 of John 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now sanctified is the word which we, from which we get to make holy. It's the word in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 when we said, Hallowed be thy name. That's the Father's name. That's the word sanctified. It's rendered in Revelation 22, He that is holy still, let him be holy. That's the word there. So it means to, be, to make holy, to hallow and so forth. Now the truth does that. You know, I used to think it was pretty cold comfort when you had a problem with, the, with something in your life and you go to a responsible brother and sister and you tell them about your problem and they tell you, you know, sometimes very tersely, get down to the word. You think, oh, my heck, well, that wasn't very, very comfortable. You, you, you sort of go away and think, well, that didn't help very much, but you know it does. You know that is right. Not, not brothers and sisters that we should leave it at that. I know that. But we, neither should we think that that won't help because well, I'll tell you what it will. It's amazing what it will do, and, and it's not always obvious uh, when we when we get told that. We think we we think we need a whole lot of other sort of help before we can get around to the word. We we just feel we need to be put on our feet by other means, and then when we get ourselves in a frame of mind that's correct, then we'll get down to the word. But that's not how doesn't work like that at all. That's logical as far as we're concerned, but the things of God are not always humanly logical. And some of the most illogical things actually work. And time and time again, that is proven true in my life. 
you have almost insuperable problems. You go every which way around them, only to walk up blind alleys and get yourself into a deep state of depression until in the end you just throw your hands in the air and you do what you should have done in the first place. You go and get in your desk and open your Bible and get in depth into some study and get your mind wrapped around that over many hours and try to concentrate, look up your Hebrew Greek words, look at your works of the pioneers, read what the brethren have written upon it, regurgitate it in your mind, think about it, and you come out of your study and think, what was my problem? That's very often the case. Now Jesus said, Thy word is truth. There's an emphasis there in the, in the original Greek on the word thy. Rotherham picking that up in his translation says, Thine own word. So it's not anybody's word. It's your own word. And that is the sanctifying influence. So it's not just simply we're going to study the scripture. It's the very word of God. It's actually God's word. It's actually the creator talking to you. That, that's the attitude we've got to have to it. Your own, your own word is what Jesus is saying. That's the sanctifying influence. You are clean, says Jesus. You are clean through the word, he said, that I have spoken to you. Paul talks about it in that chapter about husband and wife, Ephesians 5, the washing of water by the word. It's a cleansing and sanctifying influence. It's got to be practiced, sure. But you know, brothers and sisters, the word of God provides two things. It's very definitive as to what is moral and what's immoral. So we, we know what's right and what's wrong. doesn't always help just to know that. But you see, the Bible knows that also. So what it does besides saying this is right and that is wrong, it provides you with information in there about certain things that are exciting, interesting, scintillating, and it provides you with the inspiration to do it. It's much like a, if our platform consisted of all exposition... Brethren and sisters may have a fuzzy idea as to about, well, what is the practical issues of life? What's right and wrong? If, however, our platform consisted of all practical talks, nothing else but pointing out moral issues, we might have a very clear perception of what's right and wrong, but have very little inspiration to do it. We've got to marry those two things. That's in the Bible. It's all over the Bible, that is. God is very clear what's right and what's wrong. But there's so much excitement in here that when we see what's right, we want to do it because have a look at this and have a look at that. And we're so excited that we want to do that. And we've got to mix that. We've got to mix that up and we've got to see that it's in here as a mix. And God knows that. So it's his word and he's written it beautifully. He's hidden away those little gems that when they're found, they, they provide you that inspiration to want to do the things that he said because you believe in God because who could write a book like that? So that's what we've got to do, brothers and sisters. So Jesus prayed, therefore, that they would be sanctified, for he says, even so, I also have sent them into the world. Now, there's another reason why you don't take the disciples out of the world. Because they're in the world to carry on the work that he's been doing. Take out the disciples out of the world, the work of the Lord would not have been carried on. Now, when Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles, he said this, the former treatise, that's his gospel, have I written, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to both do and to teach. Jesus began both to do and to teach. So the Acts of the Apostles is a continuation of what Jesus began to do and teach. 
Do you know, brothers and sisters, you can pinpoint with reasonable accuracy the historical uh, period of the Acts of the Apostles? Do you know it's a period of 33 years? 33 years is the period of the Acts of the Apostles. Isn't that interesting? It's a repetition of the Lord's life. So there's another reason why they don't get out of the world. Because they're there to carry on a good work. The work, of course, which he laid the foundation for. And he goes on to say, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be truly sanctified, as the margin rightly has it. So in order that we might be truly sanctified, it was absolutely critical that the Lord Jesus Christ sanctify himself. Now there are positive and there are negative aspects of the atonement. If the Lord had never come in our nature and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, then there never could be, brothers and sisters, the foundation for the forgiveness of our actual sins. If he had not shown us in that nature where the problem was, that's only half the story. There's only one way to repudiate the flesh and that's by doing everything right. When everything is done right, nothing is done wrong. And if he had gone to the Father, brothers and sisters, with only that which was negative, then it would never have achieved what was necessary. What the Father wanted was what had been lost in the Garden of Eden in the very beginning when God had made everything very good. That was lost. And man brought in evil continually. There's only one acceptable standard with the Father. And there wouldn't be anyone here who would argue with it. And that is total perfection. There is no other acceptable standard with the Father. Now you might say, oh, well, I'll never be in the kingdom. Yes, you will, because God is going to forgive us for Christ's sake. Why? Not only because he went to that cross to demonstrate the flesh profits nothing, but he took to the Father, brethren and sisters, a perfect life. I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified. And so we have the, the, the statement of the Apostle. Our life is hid with God in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, we shall appear with him in glory. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. So our life is hid in God in Christ. He's got it. And when he comes back, it's going, he's going to give us that life. When Christ, who is our life, appears... Now, our life's not worth a cracker, brothers and sisters, if, if he means by that your life and my life. That's going to get us nowhere. It's just going to get us absolutely nowhere. The life we want is the life that that man lived. What if he'd never lived it? What if he'd have failed somewhere? The whole thing would have come crashing to the ground, both negatively and positively. There would have not have been an acceptable sacrifice. And we might say, for the purposes of the illustrating the point of this verse, that using this rather illustration is the best one I can think of, that it's almost like an angel appearing to us and saying, brother or sister, if you can from this point on live a perfect life, I will save your whole ecclesia. Now we know that could never be done. 
but that's what the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what the Father asked of him. That was the responsibility he had. So you see, he doesn't take a holiday. Why? Because if he, if he does that sort of thing, uh, then there's going to be a lapse in his concentration, a lapse in his life, and that's going to cost the lives of, of all those that God has given him. Hundreds and thousands and millions of them. So, so he, he can't get married because that's going to be another distraction. He's got to, as Paul says, he's got to care for the things of this life. If that's happening, he can't do that because he's got to forego that, brothers and sisters, because if he did that, then nobody would be in God's kingdom. He can't swear and curse upon the cross in the pain and the suffering that was all so unjust. He can't let go and, and, and express his feeling because if he did, then nobody would be in God's kingdom. And he can go on and on and on and on. And so look at all the things he did in life. And he was telling us, I did that for their sakes. Now that's what we mean by the word example. We say we've got to be an example. An example means not that you are proving your point to God, but that your life is helping somebody else. It's as simple as that. But this man's example's got to be perfect. So he said, they might be truly sanctified, I've got to sanctify myself. So the apostle could truly say, we are saved by his life. Life we're saved. What life? That life. A perfect life. And at the kingdom, you can imagine the Lord saying to those on his right hand, come ye blessed of my Father. And, and we'll say to ourselves, well here we are with all our weaknesses, with all the sins and all the evil thoughts we've ever thought of, but now they've been forgiven. And he takes us unto himself, gives us immortality, which is his own nature, and our own body is subdued by the power which is in him to the, to the nature that he has, and our life's his life, and his life is our life, and we're accepting what of God. Because we're him. Now, if you'd never lived that life, we'd never be there to give it. It's a beautiful thought. And you know, that ought, brothers and sisters, to affect this ecclesia. That ought to manifestly affect our ecclesia. If we think like that, it really should affect the infant ecclesia. And any other ecclesia it should affect that learns those principles. We should see that our behaviour in the meeting, our behaviour out of the meeting, we should always take account of not whether what we do or what we don't do, whether we won't be in the kingdom, but we should see that what God is asking us to do is to live our lives to be an example to others, because the measure as we help others, that's the measure of our, our life in the kingdom. That's what got the Lord eternal life. He gave his life for others and that's what the Father wanted, that's what he did and he saved himself in doing that and he was saved in the process of saving others. That's the moral principle, brothers and sisters, we learn from the life of the Lord. Now, if that principle was paramount in everybody's mind, we would keep ourselves as straight as we possibly could unless it somehow we didn't, it affected our brothers and sisters. Now, if we thought like that, it would be completely unselfish, it, it would be Godward, and it would be what God exactly wanted us to do. And that's what he did. For their sakes I sanctify myself. Now I just want to show you something here. He says this. Let's read verse 19 and verse 21. Show you how important this is. For their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified or, or that might be truly sanctified. And verse 21, that they all may be one. Now you turn to Hebrews chapter 2. So important was that that Paul paraphrased it. 
This is the chapter which speaks about his oneness with his brethren by nature. But it also says this, verses 10 and 11. Now just think about what you've read in John 17. And you read this with me. Hebrews 2, verses 10 and 11. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings, for, now listen to this, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified, that they might be one. That's a paraphrase of John 17. And Paul could see, brothers and sisters, the extreme importance and the responsibility that the Lord had in living that life. Now the last section of this chapter, of course, is something very personal to ourselves. Verse 20, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Now, brothers and sisters, it, it, was God's, it was God's method, it was God's will, that the way that message was carried was be through the apostles. It was way, God did it that way. How shall they believe unless there is a preacher? And how shall there be a preacher unless they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that bring good tidings. Bring it. They don't speak it. Bring it to you. It's a personal thing. That's Romans chapter 10. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how there'll be a preacher unless they be sent. Or we'd say, write them a pamphlet. We'll send them a pamphlet. But no, Paul says, they bring good tidings. You see, brothers and sisters, there's no more powerful method of preaching than personal conviction. Oh, we, I'm not denigrating pamphlets. We, we have to use that. But eventually, we've got to get in contact with people. We've got to make personal contact. Now, when we do, we've got to be able to show those people, through no falsity, we're not sons of falsity, but we've got to show them that we actually believe the truth so that we don't just tell them about good tidings, we bring it. How beautiful are the feet that preach the good tidings. Feet. You don't preach with your feet, but you do. So God chose to do it that way. And when the apostles went out and, and the, the crowds gathered around, Jew and Greek, and heard Peter and heard Paul and Barnabas and others, and they saw a, an amazing conviction, with great power the apostles gave witness of the resurrection of the Lord. And so that was the way that God chose to radiate out his purpose through the conviction of others. Now in the first of Peter chapter 1, we come out of the writings of the apostles. You see, we come into the truth through their writings, those who believe their word. Now you look at what Peter says about this. In the first of Peter 1, now you read this carefully with me. He says here, Verse 10 of 1 Peter 1, he says, Of which salvation the prophets have inquired diligently, or have, have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Searching what, or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now just listen to these next few words and let's read them carefully. Unto whom, that is unto the apostles, it was revealed that not unto themselves 
But unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven which things the, things the angels desire to look into. Now you don't hear what Peter's saying. He's saying, look, when the, 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 the apostle, the, uh, the prophets wrote, they, they were wondering sometimes, not always, but sometimes they wondered what it was that God was telling them. They didn't understand it. And then there were times when they said, well, when will the kingdom come? Is it the kingdom and then sufferings after, or sufferings and then the kingdom? They didn't. It was all mixed up, especially in Isaiah, and this is true. So the prophets very often were bemused by their own writings. One thing they learned, says Peter, they weren't writing for themselves. They were writing to us, the apostles. They knew that somebody would come to unravel that message. Then Peter says, when we unravelled it, we told you. Isn't that interesting? So Peter could trace in his own words God's method. But there was the message of the prophets. It was lived in the sun. There were people who saw it in the sun, worked it all out, and then they passed it on to others. That's how Peter puts it. So you see, we're here because of their writings. Now you take the 20th chapter of John. We're in the truth because of their writings. In the 20th chapter of John, the last couple of verses of, of, that, of that book, of that chapter rather, he says, verses 30 and 31, John says, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So John, brothers and sisters, was not just making a diary, wasn't just noting down what he thought about the Lord Jesus Christ or what he, he learned. He says, I've written this deliberately so that you might believe those who will believe on me through their word. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he says, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. That's how we put it. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. So the Corinthians were listening to the voice of God when they read Paul's writings and when they heard him speak in Corinth. That's what they did. So they believed on Jesus Christ through their word. That's how it was done. And we ought to take comfort in that, brothers and sisters. We, we are all channels of communication. We should all be just sort of links in a chain, a channel of communication. And God chooses to do it that way. And some extraordinary circumstances in life are brought about in our lives that we meet people or we do things or they learn about us, good things which attract them and that attraction leads them into the truth. And it's a wonderful thing, really, that, that Jesus could pray for those who would come into the truth because of the work of those disciples. And the purpose of it all, he said, that they might be one Father as we are one. You know, the, the plan and purpose of God is such, brothers and sisters, that it has to be in God the Father and in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's got to be like that. You know, Paul wrote to the, to the Thessalonians. You know, he wrote to the, the Ecclesia at Thessalonica to are in, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In God the Father. We've got to be one. We've got to get back to the source. Or, or you know, we'll be baptised a person. 
you'll notice now when our, our brethren baptise, they, they expound that verse, which is, I think, right and proper, because if we baptise a person in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit, if we had an interested friend who was related to that person being baptised, wouldn't mean much to them. But Brother Thomas, I believe, beautifully expounded that. We are baptised into the name of the Father. That's number one. People say, oh, well, I've been baptised into Christ. It's true. No, nothing wrong with that, saying that, unless, as long as we understand that if we're in the Son, we're in the Father. So Brother Thomas says, we're baptised into the name of the Father through the medium of his Son who manifested him by the power of the Spirit that they may all be one. So the apostles preached that. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Of the Gentiles also, said the Apostle in Romans chapter 3. Why? There's only one God. You don't baptise Jews into the God of Israel and the Gentiles into the God of heaven as if they were two separate gods. Or as he told the Galatians, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. And in that, in that passage in Galatians, what he's doing is comparing the mediatorship of Christ and that with the law. Now here comes the law. It comes down from God through the ministration of angels. It goes on to Moses and on to the people. So you come God, angels, Moses and the people. And in contrasting that, Paul says now, not mediating the one, but God is one. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And it's not God, Christ and men, that when we come to God through Christ, brothers and sisters, we go straight to God, because that's his son and they're one. It's absolute unity. There's no separation. They're two separate individuals. We don't believe in the Trinity. There's the Father and the Son are two separate identities, and yet they're one mind, purpose, morality, nature, everything. It's an absolute connection with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostles saying, and that's what the Apostles went out to preach to the world. That the world might believe on me. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So unity in the Ecclesia convinces the world that God has sent Jesus Christ. How does it do that? How could the world ever be convinced by that? Well, you see, you get a group of people and you get someone coming amongst us who observes that we are utterly diverse, who can see that we have such diversity in characteristics, in native abilities, we meet in different workplaces, we have different vocations, we're altogether different, and yet we're not. And that person observes that we are together. He can only conclude from that that people will only submerge their individuality and their own personalities under the weight of something greater. You think about it. I've got my own ways. I'd love to be independent. Naturally speaking, I want to do my own thing. We all do, but we can't. Why don't I bother with it? Why, why do I bother with that? Because I am under, and you are under, a higher authority. And we learned about that higher authority from Jesus Christ. And when we looked at him, we thought, why did he do that? Why did he do that? 
Why didn't he, you know, when he was tired, why didn't he go to bed? Why did he want to pray all night out in that mountain? He's tired, go to bed. Guess what the flesh would want to do? Go, go and have a sleep. Why would he bother with people running around, all wanting to be healed? He's healed hundreds of them. Can't they give him a minute to himself? Why didn't he tell them to get lost? No, we see him submerging his own individuality because we think to ourselves, wait a minute, there's only one way he could do that and it's because he's under a higher authority. When people are under a higher authority, they lose their individuality and personality, don't they? They, they just lose that and they learn to get on. So that when the Ecclesia is united, that the world may believe, says, says Jesus, that you have sent me. You can only believe that by seeing the same attitude in him, as was in them rather, as was in him. So you think about that. Now Jesus said in verse 22, And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. By the way, that's a very good argument against the Trinity, because when they say, as in verse 5, the glory I had with you before the world was, they say, there you are, that you pre-existed. Well, that means that all the disciples must have pre-existed. But the same glory is going to be given to them. What's that glory? Well, brothers and sisters, it's, it's simple, isn't it? The glory that God gave him was the glory of divine nature. That's what it was. And Paul says, we are justified by faith that we might live in hope of the glory of God. What's that? Divine nature. Not, not immortality, just in the sense of, of living forever but a, a, a living forever with a nature that has all the inclinations, if you like to put it away, of God. That's a tremendous glory. Jesus said, I'm going to give them that. He says, I have already given them, as he often in his prayer speaks about the ultimate, as if it's already happened. But, but it hasn't. But that's what he will give them. Why? That they might be one even as we are one. Not only brothers and sisters, now we talk about morality, we're talking about the ultimate physical reality of being in God. It's almost an incomprehensible concept, isn't it? Then in verse 23 he says, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Now the word perfect, teleu, is the word complete. It's the same as in verse 4, brethren and sisters. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. It means simply to complete or to finish. Uh, you have it in Hebrews 10, perfected forever. In John's writings he loves that word. He uses it several times when he talks about being made perfect in love. Finished in love. Love's the finishing product. So they might be made perfect in one. Now if you've been listening to Jesus through this prayer talking about you know, I and thee, and they and me, and me and you. you. You might think, brothers and sisters, that it's just repetition of the same thing. Just really? You look at this. What's he saying? You see, verse 21, Thou, Father, art in me, and I in them, that they also may be one in us. Okay? So you see, he is in the, the Father is in, in them. Oh, I've got that wrong, by the way. It should be, I'm sure that's wrong. Let's have a look at that verse 21. Uh, yeah, that should be, I, I in thee. That them there should be thee. That should be thee. So it should read, thou Father art in me, and I in thee. Sorry about that. 
that they also may be one in us. Now there's the pattern. So the Father and the Son are together as a pattern, right? Now that's the pattern that's got to be achieved. How is it achieved? Verse 23. I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. So you work it out. He says, you're in me and I'm in you. The Father and the Son are together. Now there's the pattern that's got to be finished. Now how does that happen? Well, here's Jesus now in the middle. And he says, I'm in the disciples, but I'm also in you, so that we can bring everybody together. So first of all it's like this, the Father and the Son, and now the Son's in the middle because he's in them and he's also in the Father and now they can all be brought together in him in one. So you've got the pattern and you've got the process of how it's done. And when you set that in your Bible, it really makes interesting reading. The Father and the Son had, had a necessity to be one as a pattern and now the Son is in between as the mediator between God and men. He's in them and he's in the Father and he brings them all together. It's a beautiful thought. You know, Paul expresses it like this in Corinthians. But to us there is one God of whom are all things and we in him. That's the ultimate. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. So here's your pattern, and there's your process. It's all tending to this in the end, and that's how it's done. So in that prayer, therefore, there is a wonderful pattern of thought from that. And we come, brothers and sisters, to, to learn that pattern and to act upon it. Now we try and finish off this chapter in verse 23. He goes on to say, Father, he says, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Now love's a mutual thing. You know, brothers and sisters, love isn't just something because I love you and you love me, therefore we love each other. It's, not, it's more than that. You see, love, a deep and abiding scriptural love, is a love which says that I love you because you love the same things that I do. You stand for the same things that I do. You hate the same things that I hate. We share a love on a wider basis than something just personal between the two of us. We, we could, in the, in, the, in the earthly sense, have a, even an affection for a person of whom, with whom we've got no real affinity. We could have a, an emotional love without a real affinity. But you can't have this sort of love without a total affinity. And that affinity goes beyond just the person themselves. It goes to everything that they love and everything they don't love. And we have the same, same passionate feelings as they do. Now, if you come back to John chapter 16, we are reading here in John 17 about the word agape, but, but in John 16 you've got the word filio used like this. Filio means, of course, an affection, having affection for a person. It can be just ordinary or it can be spiritual. It depends on the object of it. But in verse 27 of John 16, for the Father himself has a filio for you because you have a filio for me. See what he's saying? So Jesus is saying, the Father just doesn't love you because you love the Father. The Father loves you because you love me. 
So you see, it goes wider than just two people, two, two individuals. It's not just a love that's shared between them and that's left there. It, it spreads itself out. So the fa- Father has a genuine affection for us. Why? Because we have a genuine affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me tell you something. I don't, I don't think anyone can challenge this. There's no greater love than agape love. It's, it's a love which says it's more the assent of the will. It's something based upon the intellect where we do things, we may even rebuke a person because we love them. It can be done like that. So it's, it's an intellectual thing and it has to do with the deliberate assent of the will. And you know, brothers and sisters, we can treat each other up very unkindly and then glibly say we did it because we love them. The, you know, the real love, the agape. We'll never know that until Christ comes. No one will ever know that. God himself knows the motive for that. I could never test that. I'll tell you what you can test. You either have a genuine affection for a person or you don't. You might not know your own motive in applying agape. But if you haven't got filio, you have not got agape. And that you can test. Now, you you think about that. Peter says we, we we, we love the brethren, Philio, we've got to show unfeigned agape to them. He uses both words in, in, in a verse in one of his epistles. As I say, with, with agape, it's a question of motive, and as Uncle Purse once said to me, John, you never know your own motive, and you don't. But you know whether you've got a genuine affection for a person or not. That is demonstrable. You can demonstrate that in yourself. And the only answer, the answer's got to be in your own heart. And that, I think, is very frightening. And when God said, I have an affection for you because you have a genuine affection for my son. And it's across the board thing. And so here in the 17th chapter of John, he says, you know, he said, you have loved them. In that, in that 23rd verse, he says, I know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as you have loved me. And because the father loved his son and we love his son, the father loves us. That's what he's saying. Then he makes verse 24. Father, I will that they also may be where I am. I will that. I want that. That word will there is really the word for desire. Rotherham, RSB render it that way. Father, I desire. He desired it, brothers and sisters, that where he was, those disciples would be. Now, where's that? Well, that's back in the 14th chapter, isn't it? You know, people who believe in going to heaven say, there you go, Jesus is going to heaven, we're all going to go to heaven. He didn't mean that at all. He said that where I am, that there you might be. Where's that? Well, in John 14 and verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, brothers and sisters, I do not believe he is merely talking about where he is. If he's talking about just where he is, at that moment he's on the earth because he's come back here. So if we take the words literally to mean where I am, we can confidently say he's on the earth because that's what verse, 14, verse 3 of chapter 14 says. But I don't really think he's just talking about locality. I think he's talking about the achievement of immortality, the divine nature. Jesus desires to share that with us, brothers and sisters. He really desires 
to share that with us. He says that where I am they may be and he goes on to say that they may behold my glory. You know, it was considered to be in the Old Testament a positively terrifying thing to behold God's glory. You know, the occasions when it was done, Manoah and his wife and the angel who did wondrously and Manoah thought he'd die. Isaiah in chapter 6, he trembled exceedingly because he had seen the glory of Yahweh of armies and he was really, really terrified at that. Daniel falls flat on his face and there's many, many examples that, that to see the glory of Yahweh, brothers and sisters, in mortality is a fearful thing. But Jesus said, they're going to see my glory. And there'll be no terrifying aspect of it then because we will share it. It's only terrifying when it's so contrasting. But here it isn't contrasting. But you know, Isaiah 33 and verse 17 says, they shall see the king in his beauty. They shall see that. For he says, thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. He said that earlier in the chapter, didn't he? You know, it was Jesus himself, and he taught in his parable, he says, come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now we weren't loved from the foundation of the world as he was loved. We, we can never claim that. We say he was in the mind of the Father, and he was. Just imagine what that mind was like, and you can't, but try. How real was the Lord Jesus Christ to God? And there he was, brothers and sisters, in that Father's purpose, well and truly settled there as an individual. And yet whilst he was there, before the world was, God was preparing the kingdom for people who would believe in him at the same time. It wasn't that Jesus came and God thought, well, that's good, now we can save people. He was preparing for their salvation while he had his son in his mind. If he was loved from the foundation of the world, the kingdom was being prepared at the same time for people to inherit it. So it's a wonderful thing to consider that. And then he calls God in verse 25, O righteous Father. Why? Because the world has not known you. It's a contrast, isn't it? As Holy Father was prayed to to keep the disciples separate, here Righteous Father is because he's contrasted to the world. But brethren and sisters, he's not contrasted to the disciples. Righteousness will always be a contrast if we're talking about God and men, whether they be men in Christ or not, if we're just considering them as men, but we're not. We're considering them as people baptised into Jesus Christ. God's righteousness imputed under them. So he says, the world hasn't known, but I have known, and these have known. And you know, I believe it was a very appropriate title at that time of his life. Now he doesn't call God a righteous father anywhere but here. Look where he's calling him a righteous father. Just before he enters into the Garden of Gethsemane. Because he's going to have to confront the issues of God's righteousness right there. He's going to have to face up now to the cross where God's righteousness was declared. And so in preparation for that, I believe the Lord is preparing his mind. O righteous Father. You know, Psalm 22, which speaks of the agony of the cross, calls God holy. Thou art holy. Why? Because that psalm's about a man suffering to prove the point. 
Well, he's righteous, Father, because a man's going to suffer to prove that point. He's just by the gates of the Garden of Gethsemane, brothers and sisters, when he says that. And God's righteousness is going to have to be declared. Now, you notice in that verse the word known, you got it three times? It's the word gnosko. And it means, brothers and sisters, to have knowledge. So God's righteousness involves knowledge. Isaiah 53 said this, By his knowledge shall my righteous servant make a lot of people righteous, shall justify many. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Righteousness has to do with knowledge, brothers and sisters. We've got to know what it is. We've got to see very clearly the difference between God and man and the relationships of God and man. And we see that in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see it on the cross that the righteousness of God is not seen in human nature. It's seen in the destruction of it. We see it in his life that righteousness is not seen in the way that ordinary men act, but the way that he acted. And so we behold this righteousness. Oh, righteous Father. It's a question of knowing that. We watch and we see both aspects. And we come to know the doctrines of the truth. The simplicity of what we believe that's expressed in our statement of faith in ever so simple terms that we might understand and know that. Three times that word is used. Now, so important is that that he says this in verse 26. And I have declared unto them thy name. Do you know the word declared? I mean, Gnosko is spelt English, I'm re reading now from concordance, G-I-N-O-S-K-O, three times in that verse 25, but the word declared is G-N-O-K-I-Z-O, which is from that first word. So because it's a question of knowledge, he says, I have made known unto them your name. That's how Rotherham renders it. So he's expressed that name. So he's not only manifested in verse 6, but because it's a matter of knowledge, he's got to tell them about it and make it known. So he expounds that name. As we would normally do, we take a person through for baptism. We come to Exodus chapter 3. We spend a lot of time on that verse about the God of Abraham, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. We point out the Hebrew name it is, of course, Yahweh. It comes from the Yahweh, how you say it? And it's, I will be who I will be. And we point out this is God's extension of his being into others, that ultimately his purpose is to incorporate all into himself. So we, we, we build that knowledge in a person's mind. And then we show them the means whereby that is done. So Jesus said, here is God, I manifest him, and now because it's a question of knowledge, I'll tell you about it. I have made known unto them thy name. Look at Isaiah 52. The world is wicked, but the disciples of the Lord learn about that name and they get to know it. In Isaiah 52, Verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith Yahweh, and my name is continually every day is blasphemed. 
Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know it in, they shall know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. You, because of now Jesus said, I've given them your word, the world's hated them. He said, Oh, you have hated my people, have you? You, you, you take them away for naught, you make them to hell. Well, my people will know my name. And that's exactly that prayer. So let the world do what it likes. But we have the name revealed to us. And we know that the knowledge of that and the knowledge of the righteousness of God in that name, brothers and sisters, is eternal life. That's why Jesus said, I've told them about your name. Not just manifested, I've told them about it. And I'll keep telling him, he says. And he has a purpose in telling them. Now you read those last words. That the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them. You know, a lot of John's sayings are read as if they were just little things you put up on the wall. You know, they sound lovely. But just think what that's saying. I'm going to keep telling about your name so that the love wherewith you, God, has loved me may be in them. What love? What's that mean? Well, how could we ever, ever plumb the depths, brothers and sisters, of God's love to his son? How did you do that? How did you ever know how, how deep that love was? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now Jesus prayed that that love, that love, might be in us. So you see, there are no perimeters to that. There are no limitations to it. It's just a constant striving to understand it and a constant striving to come to grow, to love that love that he loved his son with, so that we look at his son and love him for the reasons the father loved him. We'll never, ever reach the stage where we can love him like the father loved him. That, that's just beyond question. But there's some way, brothers and sisters, that the love wherewith he loved me, you love me, might be in them. That's an enormous statement. The last thing the Lord said in that prayer the last three words he used was, I in them. So there's the method, isn't it? If the Father's in him and he's in us, then that oneness will be achieved. So his prayer finished up with the last thing, I in them. There's the method. If we, brothers and sisters, can practice that method, we'll finish up in the kingdom of God at one with the Father and with the Son.